Welcome back to the Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan, and with me, as always, is Kevin. Hey, everybody. And today we have our special guest, Alex, who is returning to talk a little bit of more, a little bit more about the milling process, and today uh, a little bit of a focus on the products that he creates. So, well, let's, uh, let's maybe do a little recap. You know, okay, for, yeah. For those of those for those of you that weren't or haven't listened yet to the previous one. Um, Alex works uh, for a mill to mill flour into wheat. And previously we talked about, you know, the milling process and um, basically from the wheat entering into his uh, grain storage facility to almost the, the end result to the flour um, and how it's, how it's made. So we thought we'd pick up with round two with um, the types of products that leaves his mill. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, where should we begin, Ke or Alex or Kevin? Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about the grain specifically or the end product and then kind of backtrack to how we, the grain affects that? Or Why don't we just start, let's continue the flow and, and go with um, like the end product and then we'll work into we'll go backwards into um, the type of wheat and stuff that maybe he's looking for. Okay. 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 Um, so basically um, at my facility in Miller milling, we have three units. Um, one is predominantly your hard wheat. So we're doing some spring wheat and um, hardwood winter, which is going to go towards uh, a lot of uh, hardwood winter is your basic pan bread. I mean, that's the, that's the type of uh, flour you're typically putting that towards. Um, now our other unit, we're doing a lot of soft red winter, which is going to correlate to your cookies. Um, and honestly, there's a lot of blending between the two. Um, you're, you're basically trying to hit protein levels, protein ranges for per customer. Um, specifically the customers, our direct customers, um, being in Texas, tortilla production is a huge part of our business. Um, it's probably up there around 25, 30% of our wow. business. Um, then you I, start do, I do love a good tortilla. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank I mean, you. Thank, thank you for your service. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You're welcome. And I promise you, I mean, our, our flour is in those tortillas that you'll, when you go to the supermarket, you'll see those, those popular labels were, were in that uh, definitely. Um, then we also cross over into a lot of uh, breadings. So that's your panko, uh, breadcrumbs that you're buying around uh, Thanksgiving. But the other thing that uh, gets used for bread, or the, the other thing that I use breadcrumbs for, if you think about it, is uh, fried chicken, which oh, yeah. down in Texas, you have a whole lot of uh, uh, fried chicken type places or chicken strip type places. That, that's a lot of business. Um, there's also um, a lot of blending with other products, such as, uh, so if you're making a, a corn dog, for, for instance, we don't do cornmeal. Um, but we do. So you're we, saying we've been lied to our whole lives. Oh, well, no, they're, they're definitely putting corn flour in there. It's not all corn flour. Yeah. I mean, the part that tastes really good, that, that's all, the, that's all the, the wheat flour. So oh, we'll, man. Take, we'll take credit for that. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> We're now going after the corn millers. Is there like a rivalry at milling conferences between wheat, wheat millers and corn millers? No, honestly, I, I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, um, I know that uh, it's probably just because of the 
the amount of flour millers there are versus corn millers. Uh, I mean, a lot of the corn production in the U.S. is actually going to uh, feed. Um, yeah. Now, I've I've been in a couple of the corn mills in in the U.S. and um, you're all, lots. Of, it's just different end uses. Um, their flour is a byproduct. We talked a little bit previously about how my byproduct goes to feed. Well, their byproduct goes kind of to humans because um, they're making. You don't want to make flour um, from a corn milling standpoint. You're making uh, different levels, different particle sizes, like flaking grits, uh, which is your corn flakes, or brewer's grits, which is going literally for uh, production of alcohols. Um, so if they're making flour, they're not doing a very good job. Um, so for them, they're kind of just a little too tight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little too tight. You forgot, you, you talk about these grits for brewers. You forgot one of the most important dishes is the South. Oh, grits. no. Oh, man. <laughs> I love me a good bowl of grits. Well, you, you're outnumbered here, Ethan. You got two folks that originate from Kansas. <laughs> Y'all not enjoy a good bowl of grits? I don't prefer them. Uh, I sure don't. Not, not to offend all those great grits. <laughs> Just not my cup of tea. They're great. They have no nutritional value. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. But uh, hey, Alex, can you can you go back when when you were um, talking about units? What what were you meaning there? Like when you said you have a unit for hard red winter wheat or soft uh, spring wheat? What do you mean? Like, are you talking about a storage facility? Are you talking about like a section of the mill that's dedicated to part of it? Or okay, that's a good question. Um, so when I refer to a milling unit, um, each unit is a closed process for the most part. There's some blending. Um, you can bring in wheat to multiple units. Um, but for the most part, that is a closed system. You put in a product and what comes out is, you know, your finished product. So, um, in our example, our, uh, our first unit was made in the mid to late nineties. Um, so they had, that's all they had. That, that was their, that was their milling unit. And when they expanded, they added a secondary unit in the same building. So it's a, it's got its, even though it's very similar, it's it's completely separate process. And in our case, it's actually very different because you went from make a unit that is grinding hardwood winter and hardwood spring to a unit that is capable of doing anything but Durham wheat. Basically, um, we're doing soft red winter which doing transferring from hard red winter to soft, any soft wheat is a very, very difficult thing. It's, it's not that common. Um, uh, the Texas soft wheat uh, market is very unique in that it grinds a little bit different. Is it so because able... it's, cause it's softer or is it just, you know what I mean? Obviously it's not yes. technically softer, like, but. Yeah. So they're referring to actually to, to the bulk density. Um, okay. So your bulk density is different. Um, so it's, it's flowability. The flower uh, is a little bit, uh, it doesn't flow as well. Um, that's, that's typically why, um, it's also lower in protein. Um, so your, your product, your end product's a little different. Like I mentioned, that's going towards your cookies and, and that kind of a stuff. And, and it gets blended in typically your soft red winners in Texas are a cheaper wheat. So you're, you're buying your wheat cheaper and you're going to try to put a little bit of that into your hardwood winter higher pro uh blends um to try to optimize value for you and for the the uh 
the customer because that's going to be a negotiated value, right? You're in target. So you guys are kind of hopefully on the same page on that, on what you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's a, it's, it's that, a that laugh made me think that sometimes that's not the case. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, you, some you're trying to hit, some you're trying to hit so bad. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of, um, you're given limitations and you're always going to try to make the customer happy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's going to make more sense to, to put a little bit more of, of one product in the other. And at the end of the day, if it, if it works for them, great. If it doesn't, you have a big problem on your hands and you better, you know, you better yeah. start up the conversations with your customer, um, and, and start figuring out where, where you guys can meet back in the middle because, um, in our world, um, customers can bounce around very quickly. They can buy week to week contracts month to month one contracts year to year, twice a year, uh, depending on the company, they can do whatever they want, depending on their volume and their, and their situation. They can go as far as um, going in on futures with you and settling on a long-term commitment. So it's all about the relationships. If you start messing around with what you're putting in there and they start seeing a whole bunch of differences and there's some uh, lack of communication, or if you're not being transparent with them, your relationship sours. And yeah. once that sours, it's, it, it, it's very rare that they go back um, third. So um, you, you're always trying to do whatever you can for them um, and, and making them happy. And if they, want, if they want to make a change or something's not working, you figure out how to fix it. It's interesting because um, it, it's your end product is so specific that you, you're, the front end has to be the same. So the back end is like consistent, you know, mm-hmm. so you can't really afford to have, like Ethan as farmer A and then leave. And then all of a sudden you get me as farmer B and you know, it may be completely different. Yeah. Um, and you rely a whole lot on grain elevators. Like I said, I don't manage a grain elevator. Um, most milling units, mo- most milling uh, facilities do um, because uh, they have a set amount of grain storage and they're left to their own devices on blending wheat um, to make a uniform end product. Um, because if you're milling a 14 protein and a 12 protein doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting a 13 average, you know, uh, it's, it doesn't, the math, I know there's theoretical math, but it doesn't always work out that way. Um, in our case, like I mentioned, we're very lucky because we have some, some very good partners that we're connected to and they're, they're loading and unloading unit trains, which is 110 car rail cars at a time. And their blending capabilities are great and their volume is great. So we get a uniform product in and out, which translates to our customers giving a very uniform product, which is a big, big thing. Um, it's almost more important than, than say the, the, I don't want to say it's more important than the quality because I'd probably get me in trouble. But the fact that they're getting the same thing every day means they can make changes to their process and then let it ride. They don't have to make changes past that. Um, so that's, that that has a value for them. And, uh, and that's part of the reason that we're pretty successful with the things that we do. This brings up a a kind of an analogy to Starbucks. So (laughs) you're ready brought brought to you by, (laughs) I didn't realize you guys are sponsored. This is not trademark. So think about this. There's Starbucks all over the nation. Okay. The coffee, you go get a cup of black coffee. It tastes exactly the same, no matter where you're at. So what changes from Uvalde, Texas, Starbucks? Yes, we have a Starbucks. 
to Wichita, Kansas or Seattle, Washington, the water. So the, the most important component at a Starbucks is their water filtration system. They have to make the water exactly the same at every store to get the exact same product. So like your, your end user, uh, say Kevin and I have a tortilla factory. Well, for our end product of bags of tortillas to taste exactly the same, we've got to get the same product from you, you know, to make a consistent end product. Your in, you know, input that we're buying from you has to be exactly the same all the time. So when, you know, when Alex is buying wheat from different elevators and, and different proteins and buying wheat from, you know, the Texas Panhandle or, you know, Southwest Kansas, that's, that's crazy different proteins and environments. And uh, I'm sure granule size has changed. So you've got a, you're a choke point for consistency, you know, so you, you're kind of, you got to take all these variables and make a uniform product. So mine and Kevin's tortillas, when we take them to the grocery store are, exactly uniform you know that's insane that you're able to do that like it's it's very mind-blowing that you're able to pull that off and, and you're exactly right because <clears throat> i know that you related it to starbucks but even in my world in the baking world um there's companies out there that they take a huge region or even the whole u.s and they bake a product and they send it to a uniform lab and somebody's evaluating how close together they are are these buns the same i mean they're i mean that that's something that that is actually done. And if if you don't have a uniform product, because if people don't get the same bun that they had in Seattle that they did in Texas, they're gonna have some questions. So, I mean, yeah. how how would you feel if you, you bit into like this great one time and it's extremely sour the next? You know, you yeah. wouldn't you would you yeah. wouldn't come back. Yeah, yeah. Not come back. Yeah. See, look at that. I took y'all on a journey, <laughs> and it actually made sense. <laughs> There You're you welcome. Go. All three of you listeners are welcome for that. That's what we call entertainment. <laughs> Alex, but, let's go. Let's go back to blending. I got a, a question here. Okay. So, like, you're when when you say blend wheat, right? Does it happen mm-hmm. out of the rail car, or does it happen after when you actually have flour and you kind of know more about your product? Does it? You know what I mean? Um, it's always gonna. First of all, it's always going to depend on your facility's capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak of, because of my facility, I speak of two types of blending. There's end flour blending, which is think of a, like a mixed plant where you're making a recipe. Mm-hmm. You have a cup of this and a cup of this, and that goes into the pot. And that's what you have. Um, but there's also the front side, which is more common, I believe, um, because it's, it's uh, wheat blending. And uh, basically, if you think about, you know, small town elevator has just for the sake of argument, four bins. Um, hopefully, uh, they're blending, say, off, off of each truck, they're going to separate as close as they can by, say, protein. Let's assume that all the wheat's the same class, right? Um, so if they're, they're doing that according to protein, um, and then that's connected to, that's going to go to a, a miller, then you can actually take say 50% of bin one, 25% of bin two and 25% of bin three and make a wheat blend. And you can kind of grade it out and see what your average proteins are and see what that is. So you're literally making a recipe 
and taken percentages out of these different bins to create what's going to go to the mill. And then the big part of that is actually going to be, okay, evaluate what happened to the mill. We talked a little bit last time about yield efficiency um, in, in the plant. If your yield drops by, you know, three tenths of a percent consistently, that's a, kind of a big deal. If that was just because of the wheat change that you did, you got to make sure that the, that the wheat that you bought made sense financially for that rate loss or that, not that rate loss, but the yield loss. So, um, so yeah, the, the, uh, the wheat blending is, it's, it's a very, it's a very big thing and you're right. It, it it's definitely translated to customer in use. Um, some, some, uh, mill facilities don't have a whole lot of capabilities of blending and they just blend one type of flour and they just ship it off mm-hmm. in bulk. Um, the facility I'm at, we're a lot more flexible. So we do it on, on both ends. That also means that we're making, um, in our world, we'll, say it's over 120 different types of flour. I mean, that's, that's how we characterize what we're doing. I mean, we're very flexible. So oh, wow. that's all, that's also why our, uh, our customer base is very dynamic. So you can, yeah, you can send it to tortilla factories or cookie makers or bread or, or whatever. So I, this may be backing up a little quite a ways, but so <clears throat> we're talking about parameters of the flour that's, that customer's order. So say Kevin and I have a tortilla factory again, when we have a, an order sheet, what are some of the things that we're looking for? Is it like particle size, protein content? I mean, what, what are some of the things that you're selecting for as an end user when I place an order to you? Okay. Uh, the very, the very, very basics of looking at flour. Um, a long time ago, they decided uh, they're going to look at three attributes and one is moisture. Um, the amount of moisture, the flour, um, is going to directly relate to how much water needs to be added. Um, then there's the ash. The ash content is the amount of organic material in the flour. So, um, basically if you put a bunch of flour in an oven and all that, all that left is left is literally ash. You actually physically weigh that to feed, to find out how much organic material is in that flour. That also correlates to the color. So typically the lower ash, the whiter the flour because it doesn't have parts of bran in it. Basically that's the outer layer of the kernel didn't make its way to the flour. Um, so the, the flour is whiter. Um, and then there's the protein. Uh, protein is very big. That, that's going to tell you what you're allowed to use this for. Um, okay. That's going to tell you basically what's going on with the gluten on the inside. Uh, when you start mixing uh, flour, and water, um, basically what's going to start happening is, um, you're basically going to be, uh, mixing the, making a homogenous dough, right? But, um, the type of protein and the strength of the protein is going to dictate the size of the gas bubbles. So that's going to, you know, dictate how that thing holds together, how that thing rises. Um, I don't want to get in trouble with a whole lot of bakers by mis misspeaking here because I'm a little out of my element, but but that's how that correlates to that. Okay, cool. So um, and that and that's the stuff that you're that you're blending to achieve based on an order by whoever, you know, Kevin and Ethan's tortilla factory decided mm-hmm. we're going to order, you know, flour from you. You know. Yeah, yeah, and those are the very those are the very very basic features. Um, in this day and age, there's a lot of other tests. Um, there's one that was actually uh, designed at Kansas State that a lot of 
baking industry users uh, use, and it's a phrenograph test, which is basically uh, the theory. It, it's it's uh, basically they took a couple different tests and made one all together. Um, if you if you mix flour and water together and you just continue to mix it, eventually the dough falls apart and it's just a mess. It just sticks to everything. So there's a limit to uh, to basically uh, the amount of mixing that can be done. Um, so this test is actually looking at how much water can be added before and how much mixing can be done before it all falls apart. Those are numbers that are very valuable to somebody that's making huge batches um, because, if, because if something changes on that, on that, this actually gives you a graph that they can kind of correlate this to, or at least see changes in. So if that changes, they know that they're going to have, they're going to have to make some recipe changes. Maybe it's just a difference in water. Maybe it's a difference in mix time. Um, that's, that's a very, very valuable test for them. Um, going that does back, make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you, you know, some of these bread people or, you know, bread bakery, you know, industrial bakeries are probably mixing up 200 pound balls of dough and cutting it up, you know? So mm-hmm. it, probably, it probably takes some time to get all that incorporated. And if it takes too long, you probably start to break it down. So mm-hmm. I never really even thought about that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that is more and more of a hot topic it, speaking of what the customer is asking for is going to be your, your micro ingredients or your small ingredients. They're actually going to go in with the flour. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, reasons that they, they, the customers will ask for these things. Sometimes they affect in baking product. Sometimes they enhance the gluten. So it holds up a little bit better. Sometimes it's just a whitening agent. Like you can actually, uh, add bleach powder to, um, to the flour. Um, it's not like adding Clorox to it. Um, it's, it's basically a, a bleaching agent. It's not bleach. It's a bleaching agent. So it's a whitener. Um, and that's going to give you an end product that appears more white, which is more appealing. Um, and that's all bleach flour comes from. It's, it's some type of bleaching agent that just, um, is there a chemical process at the molecular level or is it just kind of coat the flour particles? I mean, how does, how does bleaching of that really Work. You know, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I know, I think that it, there is a something going on to an, on a molecular molecular okay. level. Um, I'm not an expert on that, uh, to be honest. Uh, I don't know exactly how it happens. Um, I do know that it's basically to mimic a historically, uh, what they used to do is they used to hold flour for long amounts of time because if, if you let flour sit for, a couple of weeks, it actually naturally whitens. So this is oh, kind wow. of a, so this is a the process up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of what it's doing. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're getting that in our day and, day and age. I mean, you're getting that immediate uh, switch <laughs> the uh, quick. That, that, everybody, that everybody wants. I mean, that, that um, so, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's a very desired um, thing or used to be uh, now that, everything's going towards clean label. There's a lot of these uh, ingredients that are getting taken off. Um, The other term that you'll hear is enriched. Um, So basically we um, back around, uh, I think it was around World War I, they started realizing that a lot of the American soldiers were malnourished and uh, compared to to other regions. Um, So they, they decided they had to fortify their food somehow. And the most common thing that people were eating was bread. So they started fortifying the flour with, uh, you know, vitamins and minerals basically to mix in with the flour. 
had a very small mouth that you would typically wouldn't even taste. Um, and that was a way of having a healthier country basically. Um, now the way things are going, that's, that's not a desirable trait sometimes. So a lot of that's getting removed um, because you're asked to disclose exactly what's in it. It's not just a part of the label anymore. It's part of the micronutrients label yeah. on the side. Um, so yeah. those are all things that the customers are going to dictate to us what we put on. Um, it's not something that we choose to put on um, unless they want it. But okay. What's interesting is you go to Alex's mill and you look around and in a room – They've got bags with different labels, right? And I'm going to probably exaggerate, but it's probably 15 different bags of products that come out of his mill. So it's like, it's interesting that they're almost like customer blind. Does that make sense? Like their, their, their flower, like he, he said, goes into multiple facets of things. Some of them that are, let's say the Miller label. And then some are the, diver tortilla label you know it's our tortilla factory not just i'm a humble man (laughs) we wouldn't make terrible tortillas we would have an awesome logo (laughs) and and alex would have it on his wall so with, with that alex why don't you maybe explain some some of the different i mean we've kind of touched on a little bit but like maybe if you if you can you know what in products you fulfill. Does that make sense? Like obviously you have a bag of Miller milling flour, right? Mm-hmm. But do you have multiple bags of, of Miller flour for like one for just cakes and one for just cookies and one just for crackers? Um, we have labeling that refers to that. Um, at the end of the day, um, just because I, I have a bag that says tortilla flour on it doesn't mean that that's only going towards tortillas. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. If a lot of these, um, a lot of these labels are, are just that labels for selling. Um, so, um, we also have one, you know, I mean, you can, a very common term is an all purpose, which is what you're probably buying at home. I mean, they label that because there's a junk flower. (laughs) You know, I I can't even say that it's just a broad spectrum. And and the, the, uh, the restrictions are very loose on, on, on different levels of ash and protein. Um, so it, it's, it's very, very diverse. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't get too caught up in in what the the label on the bag says. Um, uh, it's more important to know, uh, I guess it's never going to say protein range on the bag of flour you buy. Um, but it's, but if you know what you're kind of looking for, um, there's very specific, I mean, if you wanted to make a pizza dough, for example, there's very specific pizza dough flours out there. Um, and they're going to be a little bit hardier than your all purpose or maybe, maybe a little bit higher in, in protein. So you're going to have a, your, your texture wise, that's going to taste a little different than your, your uh, pan bread, right? It's going to have a little bit more of a chew to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, and then at the end of the day, I mean, a big part of the, our business, I'm not a part of it. It's on either coast, um, but is Durham milling, which is all noodle production, yeah. which you in a, enter a whole new ball game. You're not making flour. You're like those corn millers. Mm-hmm. You're making a semolina, um, basically, uh, or 
farina basically and you're mixing water with those larger particle sizes to make a noodle and you hope it's as clear as it can be um so it's it's more about knowing like what type of wheat you're grinding and what and then the customer kind of deciding what's going to work for them and sometimes you guys collaborate together and figure out well will this really work for us or will it not um depending And, and you can send flour out for different bake tests um that was something that we always talked about in school. There's no, um, there's, there's not going to be a great replacement for a bake test because at the end of the day, you need to know what that product did. You can come up with all the machines and testing agents that you want, but until you put that in a pan and oven, you're not going to know what it really is going to do. So. Yeah, Ethan. So it's funny. We go to Alex comes home for the holidays, right? And um, we start cooking or doing whatever, and the first thing Alex does is, "Mom, what kind of flour you got there?" <laughs> and inevitably, it's something off the off the shelf, right? That, and then he goes, uh, "No, mom," <laughs> he, because he because like we're talking, it's it's so specific, and it is a science to yeah. what you like. For instance, in a, in the milling um, curriculum. Alex did a lot of baking. Like there, there's actually two majors at K-State. You got a baking science and a milling science, but like Alex did a lot of baking stuff as well because it ties in. And, it, and I can see that. I mean, it's it's like it's where chemistry and physics kind of combine into your food. And, and that, that's what's cool why we wanted you on here is, you know, we've talked in the past about uh, vegetable production just to and, and how that affects your food and how when I go to the grocery store, I judge vegetables because I kind of know the standards that different mm-hmm. grocery stores have and stuff. And now to put it to the flower perspective, there's so much more science in it because it's not just, we're not growing a squash and washing it and put it on a shelf. Like you're, you're doing chemistry and physics and there's 8,000 more steps to get to this, you know, and this, this has been really cool. Um, yeah. It's, to, it's a little, it's yeah. a little tougher. And I, and I would, Wow, that would be in a completely lost situation if I had to try to grade anything from the grocery store. <laughs> Go consumer when it comes to that. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, we were we were uh, like we were talking about like Thanksgiving with flour and stuff. I've done that with with vegetables. I'll go to someone's house and did you buy this at a let's just say it, it's a large box store with a blue logo. And <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not eating that. I know what their standards are. Yeah, we're not touching that one. So you need to go to that other store. Yeah, but um, I, I want to back up a little bit. So when you were talking about end product, when you are, I'm assuming when you are, whatever you're done with, just putting on a truck or rail or boat, whatever you're doing, are you talking five pound flour bags going to the grocery store? Are you selling totes, one ton like totes of stuff that's going to a processing factory or an industrial bakery? So at, at my facility, um, you will, unless you have a membership to one of those special uh, bulk buying clubs, you won't see our my label on on any bags of flour, um, even at your uh, blue box store uh, place that you're shopping for your vegetables. Uh, you won't. <laughs> <Some> you, won't <laughs> you, you you won't you won't see our label. Um, we are we are feeding the commercial bakers of the world for the most part. Now okay. we do. Like I said, we do have 25 pound bags that will go to a, a, you know, one of those bulk buying 
uh, no, consumers. Yeah. yeah. So that, that is, I mean, that, that is a, a little bit of a growing business, but it's a little, also a, a different animal. You, the competition is completely different. Now, um, yeah. and then you touched on this a little bit about how we get rid of flour and get rid of how we sell flour. Um, we have tw currently 25 pound bags, uh, 50 pound bags that are, we have our own bag packers. So it goes into a paper bag that gets palleted and stretch wrapped and then goes on a van trailer and, or a box trailer and goes wherever in the, in the U S. Um, we also have, uh, pneumatic trucks that are loaded and those are 50,000 pounds per trailer. So that's just hauling 50,000 pounds or so of, of flour going to a commercial bakery, blowing that flour into one of their bins so that they can start their mix process. Um, another one that we do is a rail car, a pneumatic rail car. So we'll actually load a rail car with about say 200,000 pounds and that can go anywhere that there's a rail system. Um, we don't, we don't send a whole lot of rail cars throughout the whole country because, um, we really, I mean, it's, it's all about where there's other facilities. I mean, you start playing around other people's sandboxes, they're going to beat you at price at the pricing game for the most part. Um, so, cause you're paying for that transit. Um, but, but we are, we are capable of, of all three, um, bag, bulk and rail. So it has to be a nightmare. You think about like flour, like having to move, <laughs> you're talking about pneumatic and I'm just mm -hmm. thinking about, so, you know, I, I've been, uh, unloaded helped with corn harvest and being in a seaboard plant, Alex, and you know, they get all sorts of kinds of stuff and it may be like, um, Oreo cookies or, or cereal dry stuff. And then they have to vibrate everything out of the, <laughs> out of the hopper. And you don't want to be anywhere when those vibrators start going off and they have the same thing on rail cars. Okay. And when you, it just, and you just can't hear yourself think. <laughs> or yeah. it's your almost, brain is rattling in your skull. Yeah, it's like, and, and so you talk about pneumatic and, and moving flour. And I'm just thinking that just has, can be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it can be an actual nightmare. And, and obviously it has to be closed because it's, it's food grade. You know, I understand that part of it, but, um, wow. Oh yeah. There, there's a, there's a meticulous process of, cause, uh, I don't know if who's all going to understand, like when you start talking about pneumatics, so basically you're, you're pressurizing a vessel to flow product out of it. <laughs> don't uh, I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, you, there's obviously pressure release, but you, you keep it as as much of a closed system as you can. Um, and you use things like seals, documented seals to make sure that nobody's tampered with it. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, the, the way the railroad works, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of guarantees on how long it's going to take to get to somewhere For sure. or if a car gets lost. I mean, there's, that's why you have to put some of those seals on there to confirm that nothing's been tampered with. No, it didn't show up at, at your, your facility at somebody else's facility and they try to unload it, you know? But, now when, when, when you're talking about rail cars, are you talking like, are they round cylindrical or are they boxy when you're talking about this? Think about a little bit of a hybrid between the two. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's got hoppered bottoms, um, but it's definitely, definitely not a box car. No, I know, you know what you're talking about. I'm just trying to get in my head, like what it, a, what it would look like. Yeah. So the, like uh, a liquid container. Yeah. I know I've exactly. seen, 
the round Absolutely. ones are typically for liquid yeah for the most yeah. part so yeah if you ever see like a kind of a pipe underneath a bunch of hoppers that look like it's connecting it yeah um that's that's a pretty good indicator once you see one and po they point it out it's you'll you'll kind of never forget it and that's a lot of times just a pneumatic for any kind of type of pneumatic um for example i mean the same type of example can be used for uh bulk trailers they're getting pulled by a semi yeah, um, yeah similar trailer um but they use that for any dry good as well as you know plastics yeah yeah i mean just to uh, the cheap way to convey it basically how to right. get it from point a to point b so i guess one one last thing alex before we probably need to wrap it up let's talk about like output like how much output do you guys do in a day, a month, a year, whatever of actual just just flour? I mean, I don't know if is is that something you can even reveal? You know, like yeah, yeah. So um, in the milling world, the terminology that is used is a hundred weight, and that's okay. just kind of a decimal saver, <laughs> to be honest. Right. Um, they were referring to a hundred pounds of flour in a bag. Um, so. I, I spoke on our first unit that was made in the mid nineties. That was basically, um, we call it 6,000 hundredweights. Um, our second unit is 8,000 hundredweights and our third unit is 10,000 hundredweights. So uh, like what that pounds then? Basically? Yes, exactly. So what that translates to yeah. in, in a day, uh, we can produce 2.4 million pounds of flour in wow. a 24 hour period. Um, and that's, and that's, that's the goal, uh, to continue to do that, um, save downtime scheduled or unscheduled for maintenance, um, or lack of orders or, um, different things like that. Um, and I know that basically you can do your own math on, on what that's going to correlate to in a, in a week, a month, a year. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's always going to kind of depend on demand. Um, now if we're talking about wheat usage, um, we're probably talking more along the lines of, uh, our first unit being say 11,000 bushels in 24 hours. Um, our second unit being more like 20,000 bushels in 24 hours and our final unit more like 22. Um, so you, you translate to a month and you know, we're doing a million and a half bushels a month. I mean, that, that's a, nice round number, but I mean, that we're, we're, we're going through it at a pretty incredible rate uh, yeah. from, from a farmer standpoint to look at what, how quickly we can grind through something that well, it took sure. them all year to grow. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't say demeaning, but it's, it gets used really fast and it, it disappears really well, quickly. I mean, it does get used fast, but then you think about like how much wheat comes out of, let's say Southwest Kansas, <laughs> you know, and a million is kind of like a drop in a bucket. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we, you, you go through it fast, but I think weed is just a different animal because there, there's not, um, as much animal byproducts, if you will, you know, like corn goes directly to the feed yard, whereas flour is a little more, or wheat's a little more specific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. You start talking about basically I'm grinding, you know, something like, you know, 2000 bushels an hour. I mean that just to simplify the math there, I mean, it's, it, 
it can, it can burn through some, some wheat and you can, and unfortunately you can have hiccups and you can mess up really quick too. Uh, <laughs> you can put a lot of that on the ground. When those hiccups start to accrue and you know, I can see where storage would be, uh, uh excess storage would be necessary. <laughs> if you have wheat coming in and you had a unit down for two days, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. it could pile up on you pretty fast. That's yes. interesting, Alex. You say 2,000 bushel an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And if you correlate that to, I don't, I can't, I can't say this for a fact in wheat, but like in corn, it's about 4,500 bushels an hour is what one combine will cut. If that, if that, it, it, you know, and that's the whole problem in the whole system is now that our combining capacity is such that it's, it, inundates everything else it's not like we're back in the 1930s and cutting 20 bushel an hour <laughs> you yeah. know yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be a hard that'd be a hard number to come up with 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 wheat too because your yield in the in the field your bushels per acre is always going to vary you're For sure. guessing yeah. like well, what is For this sure. going to be so well and yeah you with wheat harvest you're like the combine is bringing in a lot of more material than other other crops too, because you got the stock. You know, let's say fifty uh-huh. percent of the stock's coming in, mm-hmm. in some cases. So, hmm. and you have such a vast difference in in yield. You know, our dryland corners this year, we're going to be lucky to have fifteen bushel wheat. But yeah, the irrigated, you know, we have hundred bushel potential. So, you know, a ninety percent difference. You know, because of <laughs> water. Because, yeah. So, uh, like. I don't know if we can drive the combine fast enough to the dry land, <laughs> you know, for, for sure. to keep it full. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know, but yeah, this is why you don't see much dry land wheat in South Texas and you yeah. see prickly pear and mesquite. But, hmm. So um, no, I, uh, well, Kevin, is there some more, I, I, I think, feel like I we've think touched we, just about everything. I think we, uh, we, touched enough on this topic um i think it's probably a good idea to break probably okay well alex we appreciate your time and and doing a couple of yeah, thank you this, this yeah. has been very uh mind-blowing and interesting and uh, this is this is cool to see the end use for stuff like this you know we don't um you just you think about it but you just don't know you don't know the science and the all the details that our decisions uh in season can affect you know mm-hmm. i we really appreciate your time to to teach us a lot about this and i know we could do this every week for three years and still <laughs> even talk about it but uh, we really appreciate your time man this was this was awesome no i i enjoy it i really do i appreciate you having me on um i enjoy talking about it um and uh I'm having a close relationship to uh to the ag industry with my family I mean, it's, it's always nice to try to see what your guys' perspective is on it too and see what your oh, for sure. Are, so. For sure. Yeah. So, well, with that, um, Kevin, do you have our socials where people can find yeah. us? And look Any us up? Uh, questions or uh, comments or things that you'd like? Uh, we're open to ideas on podcast material. Uh, throw, throw it at us at mediatcropquest.com and you can find us on Facebook. Um, I believe we're on, on Twitter as well. Um, 
Yeah, and that wraps up uh, this edition of Milling Take Two, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Our business is knowing the business of growing. We take pride in your success, being better than the rest. Cry,